0: Investigators, you've heard about Ted Bundy, the serial killer who attacked, raped, and murdered at least 30 women and young girls in seven states between 1974 and 78. But you might not know all the details about the attack inside the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State.
1: He attacked Lisa, again with the club. He raped her. He did a lot of bad things. And he bit her. He bit her buttocks so hard that it actually ended up teeth impressions on her butt. He killed her, so he left her room, closed the door, walked across to my room, which was right next to Margaret's. And my room was room number eight.
0: That's Kathy Kleiner, who was brutally attacked inside her sorority that night.
1: He was in a frenzy by now. He had killed two people, two women. He hadn't killed in a while since he had moved to Tallahassee. And he was just like a rabid animal.
0: Her story of survival facing Ted Bundy in court and the shocking revelation that there might be more victims out there all in this episode. Now, before we dive into the case, I want to let you know that the content is for mature audiences and still might not be for everyone. The episode pretty descriptive. I also want to remind you that I have a special shout out to everyone who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. It really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. So please subscribe, rate five star, and write a review. After the episode, I'll also share with you details about American Crime Fest that I'll be speaking at. And Kathy might be there too. And I'll tell you about a couple podcasts I think that you're going to like. More on that after the case. Surviving Serial Killer, Ted Bundy. Investigators... You're on Deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your earholes, this is True Crime
2: Deadline, a podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself.
0: Matt Johnson Investigators. Thank you for joining me for episode 18 that takes us to Tallahassee, Florida and the FSU campus. The story begins on January 14th, 1978. Theodore Robert Bundy, just weeks away from being arrested for the final time, by now he has murdered dozens of women and girls in Oregon, Washington, Colorado, California, Idaho, Utah, In Florida, cutting off many of his victims' heads that he hid in his apartment. He also returned to secondary crime scenes where he would perform sex acts with decomposing corpses. True sicko. He was once a law student and delegate for the Republican Party. Bundy was described as charismatic, attractive, and would use all of that to lure his victims and gain their trust before taking them to secluded places and killing them. By 1978, Bundy was on the run. He was arrested twice, he escaped twice. In Colorado, he actually jumped out of a second story window at a courthouse and he found himself in Florida, Tallahassee, where Kathy Kleiner had just moved into the Chi Omega sorority house. She and her roommate, Karen Chandler, had just finished decorating their room.
1: So my parents thought in the summer of 77 that it would be safer if I lived in the Cayo house, there would be more security. There was a Kyo mom that was always on premises. She had an apartment and all the girls, and it was just a safer environment. So in the fall of 77, going back as a sophomore, I moved into the Kyo house. I lived on the second floor of the sorority house. At this time, Jimmy Buffett, and James Taylor were my favorite. Uh, it was just so many songs that I loved. Um, Caroline on my mind and some of the others. And, and also I liked Elton John. So this is the music we would pretty much play um, in the sorority in the different rooms. You'd hear music playing and of course other, other bands. But um, that's kind of where I was at um, in my head. Moved into the sorority in 77, the fall decorated my room as best I can, could with what I had. Karen was my roommate. We had a sparse room in the beginning because I wanted to decorate it the way I wanted to. December came and um, I picked out a bedspread and got some other things to decorate the room with as well as Karen out. We had a color theme going. We wanted to kind of coordinate everything. Our, our bedroom in the sorority was on the second floor we faced the back parking lot, and um, our room was kind of the size of a dorm room. On each side, when you walk through the door, there was a dresser. This was a long wall that was um, parallel to each side. We had a dresser. Next to that was our desk. Beyond that were five or six feet till you got to the end of our twin beds, and our, the head of it faced toward the end of the room that was on both sides. In between our twin beds, we had a small trunk. We used to call it a footlocker, just a small trunk. We put our books and pillows and stuff on the inside of the trunk. The trunk and each side of the bed was about four feet. So it, wasn't a, uh, it was kind of a tight space. When you look to the back of the room, there was a complete bank of windows. The whole um, back wall was windows. We had beautiful uh, view of the parking lot, but our curtains, we had, we always had them open. We had pan- plants hanging from the curtain rods. And I remember our macrame hangers on the curtain rods and putting the plants in it, which is, um, that was what we had and it. It made the room always sunny and pretty.
0: Now, Kathy's description is very important because it was key things like the window blinds being left open and the trunk at the foot of their bed that played a big role in their survival. On January 14, 1978, less than 24 hours from her life-changing attack, Kathy attended a wedding down the street at her church. Her friend, who was graduating as a nurse, was marrying an engineer. It was a cold day in Florida, but the service was lovely. After the wedding, everyone made plans to go out.
1: We were in the rec room, everyone that had gone to the wedding and the reception were kind of warming up in the rec room at the church, playing ping pong and and, uh, pool, and we all decided as a group to go out and party after uh, after a while, it was around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so everyone was going to go out and party and I was too, so I walked back down to the sorority house which is just a couple blocks away, and I went into the sorority, um, into the front door which were big wooden doors that opened, uh, opened up together. They just spread open. There's the foyer. Right in front of you was a beautiful card, carved, uh, stairway. And that went up to the second floor. When I walked into the hallway, the the foyer, there was a bunch of girls. They had gone shopping, and they had all this stuff to show us. And so we're kind of, we went up to uh, one of the girls' rooms, and they're emptying everything on the bed, and we're looking at it. And it was just lighthearted and and a fun, fun afternoon. I went back to my room and decided that, you know, instead of going out tonight, I should go ahead and study. I had a calculus test on Monday. So I just I called in um, the church and just said tell we didn't have our cell phones. I said just tell everyone that I'm not going out for them to have fun. That was the decision I made Saturday evening to stay home. I got my calculus book and my notes, and paper, and I, I propped myself up on the bed, and started studying. Karen, my roommate, was on her bed sewing. She had a sewing project. This brought us from seven thirty eight. Around ten thirty, Karen and I decided we were tired, and together he said, "Let's turn off the lights and let's go to sleep." So that brought us to about eleven o'clock on Saturday night.
0: A few hours later, Ted Bundy entered the sorority house from the rec room door. The lock was broken. He grabbed a log from the firewood stack next to the door and made his way up that huge grand staircase. He then killed Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman. I'm assuming you didn't wake up during that time. What woke you up?
1: Um, You're right, he came through the the sorority house. Back through the rec room, we had a door that led to the parking lot. It was a combination door. The combination was locked for a couple days. So you just pushed the door open and it just opened up. And that was outside and from the sorority room outside. Bundy did come in through that, excuse me, through that door. Next to the door on the outside was a pile of firewood that we used for the fireplace. He literally picked up a log and went through the house and walked upstairs to our room, uh, our floor. We were on the second floor. Margaret's room was the first door on the left when you walked up the stairs. Bundy went in, and now we didn't know it was Bundy. Somebody went in, struck her with the log so hard that uh, she passed out, strangled her with a pair of nylon stockings, pantyhose, and then took the sheets and pulled it right up over her head to her chin so it looked like she was sleeping. Margaret's bed and my bed were back-to-back with the wall in between. So, I didn't hear anything. Bundy was very quick and very swift and very good at what he did, not letting people yell out and um, try to protect themselves. I heard nothing. After he killed Margaret, he walked out the door and just right across the hall, but you know, 10 feet, opened the door, closed it, and that was Lisa Levy's room. He attacked Lisa, again with the club. He raped her. He did a lot of bad things, and he bit her. He bit her buttock so hard that it actually ended up teeth impressions on her butt. He killed her, so he left her room, closed the door, walked across to my room, which was right next to Margaret's, and my room was room number eight. He was in a frenzy by now. He had killed two people, two women. He hadn't killed in a while since he had moved to Tallahassee, and he was just like a rabid animal. He was just like on a uh, on a run. He opened our door with such force that it it hit the wall on the other side. So he slammed it, uh, swung it open. It was loud, and I kind of woke up a little bit. I was sleeping on my left side on my um on the bed. And I heard that, and I kind of started to open my eyes a little bit to start to focus. And then I heard a big, big noise, a big clutter of noises. Whomever this was tripped over that trunk that was between our beds. It was dark out, so the trunk wasn't seen. He tripped over that. Now I'm waking up enough to open both eyes, and all I saw was a silhouette of a shadow of a person standing next to me, all bla- all dressed in black. He had a black knit top and um, <clears throat> as I'm laying there I saw him rise his, raise his arm up over his head and I could tell he had something in his arm and it was that piece of firewood. He slammed it down on my face with such force that my jaw was blo- broken in three places. My cheek was at, from the corner of my mouth up to my ear, was cut open. You could see the inside of my mouth. I almost bit my tongue off and he shattered um, my, my shoulder from when he hit it. My roommate, Karen, started to stir. So he went right over to her side of the bed with just a couple of feet. He hit her with the club as well. And she tried to defend herself. I think she heard what was going on or saw what was going on in, on my side. So she tried to defend herself. But he still, he hit her with, with the club. I am now moving around again. And he comes back to my side of the bed. And Bundy didn't leave any any victims. When he hit me the first time, it was, it was weird because it was like a thud. It was a hit in the face, but it wasn't. It didn't hurt, it was just a thud. By the time he got back to my side of the bed, oh, my face hurt so bad. I was just like, just in such pain. I was cringing because I knew he was coming back over, I could see, and I saw him raise his arm and I'm cringing in my bed waiting for it. And all of a sudden, lights shone up into our room. A car had pulled into the back parking lot. When our curtains were open, the light shone up into through the room and i could see i could see him jerking and and like didn't know what to do and he was really animated and then he spooked and ran out the door i'm sitting there thinking he's coming back any second the lights faded down the room got dark but he didn't come back he um that was the end of the of the attack
0: kathy and karen would survive not knowing who attacked them or if the attacker would be back. Their sisters called for help. It was mass confusion. Describe to me what was going on and what do you
1: remember? After the attack, Karen got up out of her bed and walked out into the hallway, which some of the sorority sisters were in the hallway and saw And since most of the lights were out, they couldn't see what was wrong. They just saw her stumbling. They turned her around walked her back into our room, turned on the light, and saw that I had blood all over me. And now they could see the blood all over Karen. I was in my bed. I was sitting up and rocking, screaming for help and yelling and going, come, you know, come here and help me. Anyone, come. All I was doing was making gurgling sounds because my jaw was just hanging on by one joint. And I touched my face and it was it was wet and sticky it was it was just horrible I'll never forget that it was it was hurting I was screaming and nothing there wasn't any noise so the girl saw us and called 911 immediately it seemed like it was three minutes it was probably five until the police came over and I saw him at the side of my bed and I had such a peace I was not afraid anymore because I knew this guy who just attacked me, the police wouldn't let him get to me again. So everything I was feeling and all my hurt and angst, I felt a peace, a peace because he was there. The paramedics were called in immediately. They were taking care of me and taking care of Karen. They, um, I'm kind of reacting and I'm trying to, to talk and touching my face and they said, it's okay, honey, you've been shot in the face. But we're going to take care of you. And they said that because my cheek was um, cut open. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I got beat. And I don't even remember getting shot. You know, in my mind, such confusion going on. Um, so the paramedics put me on this stretcher. They took me down these beautiful wooden staircase and they went to take me out of the door, of the front door. It was damp and it was cold and I was freezing and I was laying on, on the stretcher looking up and I could see the stars, but then I saw heads looking down at me. So I'm laying there and I see all these heads looking and I'm thinking, what are, you know, what are they looking at? What's going on? I didn't know the extent of what happened. They walked a couple more feet and I was so cold and then I saw all these lights. It was the fire truck lights and the ambulance lights and the police car and the everyone was talking and the box, the radios were squawking, and I thought I was at the carnival. In my head, I went to a carnival, and I love carnivals. So that was a safe place for my head to go. Without, I was I was so scared and hurt and so bad and. I just was at the carnival, so that calmed me down until I got into the ambulance, which again, the police officer was there, so everything chaotic and hurting, and I knew that guy wasn't going to come get me again, so that gave me uh, a bit of peace as well. I was taken to the hospital, to uh, Tallahassee Memorial, into the ER, scared and cold, and the first thing I see was my girlfriend's face who had just gotten married that day. She was a nurse in the ER and she looked down at me and she smiled and said, you're going to be okay. So now everything that's going on, they gave me medication um, and that's when I lost memory of what was happening.
0: When you're at the hospital and um, thank God your girlfriend is taking care of you and you have her there. From what I understand, there was also a policeman at your door for, for however long you were there.
1: Yes. When I uh, came out of the hospital, uh, the operating and into intensive care, I had my own room. And they took me into there. And I looked, my face was bandaged, just as you would imagine on TV. It was all wrapped with my eyes swollen. And um, I laid there in my room. And there was nobody in there with me. And I could see the cop sitting, you know, in a chair, like almost in the doorway. I mean, he was like blocking the door. And I'm just, again, trying to yell and scream what's going on and now my jaw's wired shut my face was round uh, bound up and i just was laying there and i was tapping things and moving things so that i could make noise and he looked around and came in and you know i'm like what's going on and he said well you have people waiting outside but we can't let them in yet they said we we just not allowed to let anyone into your room. And it was my mom, my dad, my sister, you know, my aunt. So within not too long a time, they were all allowed to come in my room.
0: Have uh, police figured out that it is Ted Bundy as the suspect that went into your dormitory?
1: No, they uh, they had no clue who, who who it was. They kept asking me questions. Did you know him? Did you see him? And you know, I kept shaking my head because I hadn't seen him. I didn't know him. And all the boyfriends of all the sorority sisters were inter- inter- interrogated, and um, so they didn't know who it was. They um, they had two therapists come into my room and hypnotize me. To help the police see if I could come up with any faces or names or anything. They, I did come up, but it did allow me to tell my story with such detail because I said it under hypnosis. I could hear myself talking and I thought I was making it up. And you know, here I am you know, trying the best I can to talk and saying this stuff. And that's, that's why I know what happened that night. Um, it was about a week I was in the hospital. It was time for me to fly home to Miami to where my parents lived. The um, Ken Casares was the sheriff. He was wonderful to me. District Attorney was just, just bigger than life to me and took care of my parents and were very uh, passionate and just very nice. But they wanted me to go back to the sorority house before I went to the airport because they wanted to see if anything was missing from my dresser or my room or anything and of course I didn't want to go but that beautiful wooden staircase seemed like it was miles tall. I took the first step and I had two police officers holding my elbows to help me and I took the next step and I don't know how long it took me to get there but I got to the landing I turned around the first door was Margaret's had yellow crime scene tape and then I looked to the next side and Margaret's door with they were both closed had yellow crime scene tape the next room was mine and it had crime scene tape everywhere the door was open lots of people were in there: police officers people in gowns and just confusing to me and I looked at my dresser and it was covered in in black dust that they use for fingerprints it was you know I'm like I I can't tell if anything's stolen you know I I, I can't and um, they asked if I used red nail polish to fix my stockings and I said of course not (laughs) you know I always use clear polish so I'm looking at the dresser and my eyes wander down the wall and I see my bed and that beautiful bedspread that I had picked out and it was a happy time for me was covered in blood and it was brown now and my pillows and the wall and it was it was hard to look at, but I'm glad I did because it gave some concrete thing motion in my eye that this really happened. It happened here. I was attacked, and I, I wasn't making anything up. That this was reality. So by seeing that, I think it did help put it in focus, and I could continue now without having any doubts. Where did it happen? What you know? it was it was something that I could use to help heal me
0: after you saw that you know what was your emotion was it a healing aspect?
1: it was after I um I saw the room and I slowly walked back down the stairway uh, stairwell I um, was taking a car to Miami, to the airport my parents and my sister we were flown back to Miami. I saw the yellow tape around Margaret and Lisa's door but it meant nothing I mean I had you know it's like I didn't even recognize it because of the traumatic when I went to my room. I didn't hear about Margaret and Lisa for weeks after the attack. My parents wanted to have me heal without that angst and without that knowing that.
0: When you did find out about your sorority sisters, Margaret and Lisa, how did you find out? And then how did you find out that Bundy was the man that did this?
1: I... Um, tried to read the newspapers at home in Miami. My Every time I opened the newspaper, it was all cut up and cut out. My par- parents were trying to protect me still, have me in my little bubble of um, healing and, you know, not to get upset about anything. I watched again a lot of soap operas, so I was really up to date on all my soap operas at that point. I did see the news. And they tried to hide that from me as well. It was everywhere. When I saw Karen and um Margaret's face I mean Lisa and Margaret's face on the television I got the story of what happened at that point and of course it upset me very very much while I was recuperating well they caught um, they caught Bundy a couple of weeks later he was trying to uh, leave the state of Florida by via Pensacola he was caught for a traffic. Uh, traffic stop and a stolen tag on the car so he came out of the car and the police said you know come out and at that point they didn't know who he was, was a good-looking guy you know and um, he said you better take me now and he started to run and the police tackled him and said you don't know who I am and they did and they took him back to the uh, to the police station. He had so many credit cards by so many people's names that it took him a while to figure out who he was. At this time at this time um back in 78, the police in Utah did not talk to the police in Florida. They didn't exchange information. Florida had no idea that this person had killed, you know, the women there, had gotten uh, had escaped twice, and could have been on the way to Florida. They didn't know. When they found out that his name was Ted Bundy, it didn't raise any flags or anything again until they did the fingerprints. That's when they put everything together, and they um, they knew it was Bundy that had attacked us.
0: When they find out that it's Bundy who attacked you, how do you find out that it's Bundy that attacked you, and what was your reaction to that?
1: Um... I didn't know who Bundy was. He wasn't on, you know, anything I knew. It was Ted Bundy, and we didn't have computers back then to look it up. And it was, you know, word of mouth, my parents trying to tell me who it was and hearing things on TV again and putting it together. Um, I didn't know I was so lucky to live through one of his attacks. I just was healing myself. I was going through that process. And one of the things that did happen to me uh, early on, of my recuperation a gal was in Florida I would go to the room to my kitchen and my parents had a yellow princess phone on the wall with a long cord and I would sit at the table and I would call the sorority house my jaw was wired shut so I could talk like this if you clench your teeth that's the best you could talk hi I'm Kathy Kleiner and I asked to speak to different sorority girls the pages I mean the um, the rushes would um, answer the phone so the pledges would take my message and said they would pass it on i did this every day for a couple of days i was so bummed out i was so depressed no one ever called me back my sister and mom said don't don't call anymore you know when they're ready when you know they're busy when they have time they'll call you back and i was calling so much because i wanted them to wrap their arms around me and tell me that i didn't do anything wrong again you know it was just things in my head and I needed that love and that reassurance from them that you know they didn't throw me away and I didn't run away that it was okay it was okay I had to leave and they never called me they never got back to me years later Susie White my friend from high school and was in the college and Kayo passed away she it was like two years after Bundy um after Bunny's attack, I remember I went to the funeral home to the um, to the wake with my friends from high school. We were all going as a group for Susie, and we were all upset because she was our age and um, she had a heart attack. So we all. I get to the memorial to the <coughs> funeral home, and I walk in, and there's all these sorority girls, all these coyotes that I didn't even in my head expect to see because she was Susie from high school, not Susie Caio. They, oh, I don't even know, 12, 15 of them must have been there. And they all came over to me and, and group hugged and wanted to love on me. And, blah, 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 blah. and I pushed them away. And I said, I don't know where you were when I needed you. You're here now and I don't need you. And I pushed them away. And I said, I'm here for Susie, my friend from high school, and I don't need anything from y'all anymore. One of the girls told me they were instructed by Kai Omega, the corporation, to not have any contact with me because Ted Bundy would be associated with Chi Omega. New pledges would not want to join Kyo O because of the relationship with Ted Bundy. Therefore, the corporation wouldn't get new money from new pledges, and it was not going to be good for the sorority. No contact to Kathy. Let's make her go away. And they did. They listened, and and they did. But, you know, they're young. They're scared. Everything's going on. They were told not to contact, so they didn't. They didn't think about it. They didn't think of, oh, she needs us. You know, that didn't go through their heads. I'm sure it was just told what to do and did it.
0: Now, after running from the Cayo house, Bundy broke into another college student's room, attacked and raped her. He also kidnapped, raped and killed a 12 year old days later. He was arrested after a traffic stop and trying to run from an officer. Bundy had 12 stolen credit cards, a stolen TV and was driving, you guessed it, a stolen van. In June of 1979, Kathy would face him again for the Chi Omega murder trial. The trial was moved to Miami and covered by more than 250 reporters from all over the world. This was the first trial shown on TV in the United States. Talk to me about the trial. You stared at him and gave your answers. Talk to me about this experience and and how you were able to do that and how he responded.
1: Um, The trial was in Miami. My parents went a couple days, but um it was it was hard on them, so they didn't go. I never went and sat and watched the trial. My day came to um to testify. They had all of us who were going to testify and speak in like a conference room, all of us together. I saw the paramedics who had come to my side of the bed. And I just loved on them. And they were like, we didn't think you were going to make it. You know, you were so beat up. And I'm like, well, thank you so much, of course. um, Just hugged on them. My turn to go into the courtroom and testify. And they called me in. And I went in the back door. remember I had a red dress with white piping around it because I thought red was a strong color. So I went and sat down in the witness stand. And um, I sit there and... Um, did my oath and I sat and then I looked around to get the lay of the land to see you know what was going on in the courtroom what everything was doing and I saw the prosecutor table and I you know saw the people I knew who'd been working with me and I saw the audience back there it was a full house and then my eyes swung around and I saw the defense side of the room and in the middle between two attorneys was Ted Bundy and he was sitting there looking at me with his hands up like this, as he always did, and and he looked at me, and he didn't sneer, he didn't scarl, he just looked at me, and once I found him, I looked at him. Now this is when the prosecution are asking me questions, you know, pretty straightforward. What they said with, and I don't even remember answering them. I don't, I couldn't tell you one of the questions, but I was just focusing, and in my head, I was going through that night. What he did, and that I was sitting there in my pretty red dress, and I was looking at him, and I was on the other side. I felt I felt strong. I really did. Um, I could have been there three hours or ten minutes. I couldn't tell you how long I was on the stand. The, process, uh, the defense attorney asked me some questions, and I had to concentrate on what they asked. There were like two or three questions. The last one being, is this the man you saw in your room last night i mean that night that attacked you and i said i don't know i don't i don't know i can't and i was so upset because i wanted to help convict him i wanted to be one of those things that pushed it over and i couldn't and that'll always hurt me because i couldn't help with the with the case
0: (sighs) we can we can say this man was evil What was it like to face evil?
1: I don't know what evil looks like. I know this person in front of me scared me, although it wasn't scared to the point of, you know, being cowardly or anything. When I was looking at him, it was just it was a scary person. And um, right after the attack, I read Anne Rule's Stranger Beside Me. To me, that was healthy. To read because I got the picture that Bundy was flesh and blood a person and then he was the evil side the demon and he wanted people to know him as as the good Bundy as the student as the Republican and worked at a you know crisis line. that's what he wanted us to see so I I knew there were two sides and I knew the person in front of me was real but that part of him that he hid from us was so scary, and um, I couldn't even comprehend the value of of my life being spared that night.
0: Have you made peace with Margaret and Lisa? Have oh, you? Oh,
1: um, I don't think I ever will. Margaret, Margaret was so vivacious and so beautiful, and had such poise and had long hair parted in the middle. Um, she was just. She was just beautiful. I could go to her anytime and get answers to any questions. And um, I wasn't really into her circle of, of friends because they were all, you know, the older sisters. Uh, Lisa, um, just right across the room from mine, was always down to earth and laughing. And kids were, all, you know, girls were always in her room. and We do our nails and talk. So I was closer to Lisa. Um, I don't know that I'll ever get over. What happened to them? I know I have. I'm not over it. I'm I'm walking through it. I know that to their parents, it just happened yesterday. When you think about it, you know, I've had these years to, uh, to go through it. And I'm sure if you just mentioned, the, I mean, it was yesterday, the pain that would hurt them. So I've never reached out to them because of that feeling. You know, I didn't. I need didn't need to see them to say, look here, I'm alive. Sorry, your daughter's dead. You know, I just, I couldn't understand why I would do that. So I never reached out to them.
0: Bundy would turn down a plea deal and was found guilty of burglary and the murders of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy. He was sentenced to death, but wouldn't die for another 10 years. Meanwhile, Kathy was dealing with trauma and trying to move on with her life. She had gotten married and was raising her son and started working. And at one point, had another brush with death.
1: While I was married, I went to work at a bank as a bank teller. This was in a small, um, small place in Boynton Beach on the um, east side of Florida. I worked in a bank that was small and right in the neighborhood of called Century Village, which everyone in there had either white or blue hair. And the bus would come in, and we would have our clients come in, and they'd do their little shuffle and come to the, you know, desk. And then one guy, this one time, this young guy walked in, and he had on a suit and a briefcase, and he was looking around, and we're all going, "Woo!" <laughs> you know, a young guy here. So um, he didn't do anything other than look around and left. We all talked about him, so we're uncomfortable now that he didn't do anything. So I had gone to lunch, and I was walking down the stairs. And I was going to open my window so that the girl next to me could go to lunch. And he was the next in line. And I was going to be the next available teller. (laughs) So he came up to my window and he had a little leather bag. And he gave me a note. I don't remember what it said. You're robbed or give me your money. And I opened my drawer. In my mind, I'm thinking, you give them ones or twenties first. They didn't teach us that in teller school, (laughs) you know. And while I'm talking to him, he unzipped his bag and showed me his gun. So now I'm like (laughs) really, really freaked out. The head teller knew this guy kind of freaked us all out so she was gone the police just to say this guy's here he's awfully you know scary looking or whatever we're cautious so he's looking at me right through to the back drive-through and I'm looking at him right into the lobby they had Keller teller called the police the police drove up through the window the teller window he sees the police. He grabs his stuff. I never got him any money, and he tears out of the out of the building. And I'm going, "Yeah, take that! Yeah, you know." <laughs> and I thought I had scared him enough to leave. And of course, it was the police officer that had scared him. And a few minutes later, we had gun sh- gunshots and everything. And it was really a, a you know busy afternoon. The next day, um, I got up. I went to work and I was a teller again. I figured, where's the safest place I could be today? But you know, what are the chances <laughs> that I would get robbed again? What are the chances?
0: Kathy, I have interviewed presidents. I've interviewed the Dalai Lama. I've been a reporter for 20 years. This is one of the interviews that is making me emotional. <laughs> I'm like tearing up talking to you. My conversation with Kathy extended for about an hour and a half. We had chatted back and forth for a few days and she told me that she talks about this case because it's important to remember the victims. Talk to me again about why, why it is that you share your story and what is your message for other people?
1: Um, I share my story. It is healing for me. I, I, I felt in the beginning that my, this is my little story. It's just my little cup of water. Or this is me, my story. And my son who's 38 now says, Mom, this is your story. It has gotten so big and you touch so many people. I just, I just lo- that makes me feel good. And I touch people because I tell them they can go through things and get through it. That everybody inside of them has strength, if they reach down and just pull it up and use it, no one can take that away from them, but they can use that to help them, no matter what's going on, that strength is theirs. There's people who have gone through bad divorces and and some other things who contacted me and said, you know, I got my strength. I'm not there yet, but they're not stepping on me as much as they were, you know, it's going to take me and that's, that's what's all important. I just want people to help themselves and, and a lot of victims put themselves in boxes and are afraid to go out or, or talk about it. And I understand that, but if they just tried, if they just tried to open that box and their goal may be to get to the front door and if that's what it is take as long as you need but get to the front door because I think that gives them empowerment and then they can open the door and see what's what's on the other side I used to always say you got to keep running because God's going to put another hurdle in front of you and you have to jump it because you know to see what's and now I'm pushing the hurdle <laughs> like a linebacker I'm pushing, cause, I want to see what's on the other side. I know there's something good on the other side for me. And and I just want people to know that, that they too can be strong for whatever reason, and they can help other people be strong as well. And I've gotten a, a couple of comments. Uh, you know, I'm so sick of talking to Bundy, you know, hearing about Bundy. And my reaction was, uh, unless you know how he killed his victims, what he did to them and who they were, You haven't heard enough about Bundy because all they're hearing again is one sided and they don't they don't hear the rest. And that's what's important. Um, A serial killer in definition means you have victims and each of the victims had a life. And they were all young women and they had goals and they had dreams. And he took them away from all of us, from their family, from this world so soon. And he did horrible things to them. And that just, that breaks my heart. That the victims and not having a voice. And I feel like I want to stand up for them. And of course, I can't say enough for them. I mean, you see a book with about Ted and you look up the victims and we're like half a paragraph. You know, that's all the victims in there. And it's so sad.
0: On January 23rd, 1989, Ted Bundy was finally executed. I'll post pictures about Kathy and the case on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, and Twitter and Facebook under the same name. After the episode, stay tuned for a special shout out to investigators who wrote reviews and a special announcement about a few podcasts I think you might want to check out. But before I let you go, I want to leave you with this. Before Ted Bundy was executed in the state of Florida, he started talking, telling details about luring his victims and giving half information about cases police didn't know were connected to him just yet. He was trying to share just enough information to stay alive. Do you think that there could be more victims out there with this case?
1: I do, yes, because at the end when he was saying, let me live, I'll tell you more, I believe there were more, and I believe if they had let him live that he would have come up with more, and there's so many places he could have hid them. He um, he mentioned that he would put a body in one place, take the head, put it in another county, take the clothes and this shrew them all around, and they never put it together because one county didn't talk to the other state and it was just pieces of body they found and how many more pieces have they found over the years in the places that he would generally use as a dumping site site so i do believe there's there's more victims out there a lot of people are are um are lost there's a lot of people that have gone missing you know young women in that area so i do believe there's more
0: investigators until next time Thank you for
2: investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until
0: next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? the boy. Now, a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. This one comes from the Unseen Podcast in Great Britain, those hosts. It says, Great podcast. I'm really enjoying this pod. Matt does a fabulous job telling serious cases in a professional but compassionate manner. Thank you. The episode are just the right length, and they're always comprehensive. Great job. Caprice from the Unsolved Podcast. The next one comes from the U.S. It says True Crime Bingeable, and it's from Kathy315. Excellent production, quality hosting, great stories. True Crime fans will love it. Um, Hit subscribe. Thank you. The next one comes from another podcaster. It's from True Crime Fan Club. And they say that they dig True Crime Deadline. Um, Great production and coverage. You can tell that their research goes into this. His voice is smooth like butter. And I was like, Dan Abrams, is that you? Overall, you will like the well-researched and well-presented True Crime. And you're going to want to hit subscribe. And their name is pretty cool. It's under Bossy Pants. So thank you. Again, writing reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. We're up against networks, studios, TV channels. So thank you. It's easy. It's free. Hit five star. Subscribe. Tell a friend. Write a review. Um, include your real name and your podcast name if you're a podcaster. Now, I'm also excited to tell you about two true crime podcasts that I just discovered. One is called Stolen Lives, and the other is called Our True Crime Podcast. Let's start with that one. Our True Crime Podcast dives into lesser known cases from around the world with a touch of comedy and song. Hmm. Um, Take a listen to this. Hi, this is Edward October for OctoberPodVHS.com, here
2: to tell you what people are saying about our true crime podcast. A thread store in Arizona says, Too much dribble and slang. These ladies obviously enjoy their own humor and sound high. Hey, at least they called you ladies. Benny from Idaho says, Your topics are so appealing, but a three-person pod is difficult enough to follow without banter? Um, our true crime podcast only has two people wait 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 wait. where's the other 100 five star reviews can somebody give me the five star reviews okay here we go much better luscious lee says stand up five stars you girls are funny af i especially love the me and mrs jones rendition you sneak into the recording cherry g 107 says i struggle finding a new podcast and so far i've been hooked to you guys podcast keep up the good work thumbs up thumbs up smiley face our true crime podcast two girls one story and lots of bad renditions of songs you love available on your favorite podcatcher go binge it
0: today now the second podcast is called stolen lives which focuses on the missing and murdered
3: where did you grow up was it a small town or a populated city perhaps a rural farm All are so different, but I'm sure we can all relate in one way or another. You would remember always being outside playing. You found excitement in the small things, exploring your surroundings, building cubby houses or catching tadpoles. Maybe you even have fond memories of going camping, sitting around the campfire roasting marshmallows, swimming at the lake, telling spooky stories at night... Recollections of joy, happiness, and time spent together as a family. Now, imagine if one of those innocent trips took a menacing turn for the worst. In the new true crime podcast, Stolen Lives, we will be discussing the cases of children who have disappeared from national forests or wooded areas, never to be seen again. We delve into was it simply children being children wandering off and getting lost or was it something more sinister Listen to these stories and more on the new true crime podcast Stolen Lives Search Stolen Lives on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find great podcasts
0: You can find them and us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, basically anywhere you binge. Now, a final message before I let you go. My investigators who love true crime like me, check it out. I am going to be a speaker and featured podcaster at American Crime Fest, which is sponsored this year by Crawl Space and Unsolved Magazine. We hope to see you there. Crime Festival is where the world's leaders in true crime, media, podcasts, and citizen detectives are coming together in one event. November 8th through 10th, 2019 in Wildwood, New Jersey is where it's at. The American Crime Fest will include star-studded presentations and compelling panels from the world of true crime. You can watch Aphrodite Jones go toe-to-toe or beak-to-beak with Larry Pollard as they debate the owl theory in Netflix's The staircase based on the Michael Peterson case. I see what you did there with Beak to Beak. Go behind the scenes with your favorite podcasters like us. Who wouldn't want to hang out with us? Listen to experts discuss evidence and their theories on notable cases. Please visit americancrimefest.com for more info. And stay tuned as personalities, presenters, and topics are added on a continuing basis. Don't miss this opportunity to meet, mingle, learn, and discuss your investigation with your favorite podcasters, true crime personalities, and other citizen detectives at the Jersey Shore along the beautiful ocean front. So join us in Wildwood, New Jersey on November 8th, 9th, and 10th. And remember- Remember, the 8th is an exclusive, intimate VIP night for the American Crime Festival. Sign up soon for the best ticket prices. It's going to get wild in Wildwood. Americancrimefest.com.